This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm going to be reading Acts 17, 22 through the end of the chapter. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Thanks, Court. So uh, it's fun to have your kids involved in uh, extracurricular activity, but it's also kind of a challenging, especially if they're doing something that you're good at doing as well. Now, uh, I'm going to use the example of baseball, though baseball is not something that I'm good at at all. But here, here's, here's how it works. You're, after the game, after the performance, whatever it is, your kids want to hear something from you. They want to hear something like, you did so good. You're probably the best baseball player ever to play the game. I mean, that's how good you are. That's what they want to hear. What's challenging as a parent is that there's what they want to hear, and then there's what they need to hear. And again, the better at the thing you are, the more critical feedback you can give them, and you have to balance that, because sometimes there's what they want to hear, and then often there's what they need to hear. Maybe okay, you did great, but man, you were really like dozing off in that last inning. Maybe we need to get you some more Wheaties before you eat or or before you play or whatever. So there's a balance of, okay, what they want to hear and what they need to hear. And listen, love often demands that we give people what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. Paul does this in the text. 
When we ended our sermon last week, we saw in verse number 21 what they wanted to hear. Let your eyes follow in Acts 17, 21. Now all uh, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They loved new philosophies and new ideas. And here comes Paul. And Paul's not sharing anything new. He's going back to the Jewish traditions and the Old Testament. And he's talking about the Messiah and all of this. And they're so frustrated, they call him a babbler, which means someone who takes someone else's ideas and shares them as if they're his own. And, and so they don't want to hear what Paul has to say. But what Paul does in this text, man, is a master class of sharing with them, not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. Man, in our world today, it's really true that we don't want to say anything or hear anything that we don't want to hear. And so we're really good at telling people just what they want to hear to make them feel good. But I'm telling you, love needs to win in this. And like Paul, our spirit needs to be provoked so that we'll come and present what people need to hear more than what they want. Now, Paul is incredible in this text. And I want to say to you, there's a lot that applies for us here. Question for you. Is America today, is Fort Wayne today, like Acts 2 when Peter preached, or more like Acts 17 here when Paul is preaching? So in Acts 2, Peter is delivering a message to people who really all basically believe in God who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Peter preaches to them, there's a lot that they connect with, and that's why thousands believe. But here with Paul, Paul is preaching at the Areopagus where they're all pagans. They don't believe in a God. They believe in many gods. So where are we more like today? I want to contend to you, we're probably more like Paul in Areopagus than like Peter in Jerusalem. So whatever Paul shares here then is what a genius, a master class at sharing the gospel would share and we would do well to learn. So here's the big idea I want to offer to you today. Write this down. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's speak the truth in love. This is a course based off of a scripture in Ephesians. But listen, speak the truth, the truth. We need to say what needs to be said, regardless of if people want to hear it or not. We've got to speak the truth, but we've got to do it in love. How, church? We've got to do it in love. All right, let me give you four truths from the text. Four truths from the text. We're just going to take Paul's sermon apart. Here's Paul preaching his sermon at the Areopagus. What does he share? Well, here's uh, something that the world needs to hear, uh, what Paul shared with them. I want you to write this down. This is going to go really well in our world today. It's this. Uh, your religion is wrong. This is what the world needs to hear. Your religion is wrong. Peter starts, or sorry, Paul starts right out in verse number 22. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he is acknowledging the fact that they're religious. But then check out what he does down in verse number 29. Check this out and look at verse number 29. But then, as God's, being then God's offsprings, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Look, you guys are religious and you got all of these art pieces that you're worshiping, but do you know it's wrong? That's not how God really is. So Paul is saying, yeah, you're religious, but you're, you're wrong. And I'm telling you, man, our world needs to hear this. 
your religion is wrong. Well, I got people, Pastor, you don't know this. I got people who aren't religious at all. And I want to continue, uh, no, that's probably not true. They might not be claiming some specific denomination. But listen, idols are universal. Idols are universal. God has created us to be people who worship. And by default, we're looking for something bigger than, greater than, more than ourselves. Or let me put it this way. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. All right, so it'd be good to define what the word worship really means and to get a better idea of this. And I would uh, present for your contemplation the definition from the Cambridge Dictionary, which says this, to love, respect, and admire someone or something very much, often without noticing the bad qualities of that person or thing. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of worship going on in our world. Now, really consider this definition, especially the last part of this, notice not, or without noticing the bad qualities of that person or thing, consider that, and then this picture. <laughs> I mean... 16, oh, and 16. I mean, what can you say about that? Um, <laughs> Lion fans have been saying that for 30 years, Scott, and they haven't got any better. Uh, look, but, but seriously, like, look around our culture. We're constantly worshiping. We're worshiping all kinds of things. We're people who worship. We worship celebrities. We worship ideas. And even secular humanists worship humanity and our own ability to reason and think. We all worship. Everybody worships. Now, here's the truth that is not popular at all today. It is not kind to be tolerant of other religions. It might be acceptable, but it's not kind. Well, why are you saying that, Pastor? Uh, because Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is exclusive. The way to heaven is exclusive. Only those who believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and put their faith in him and him alone, not their works, not their religion, only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, only those people are going to heaven. Everybody else is destined to hell. Everybody worships, and it's not kind to let them worship that. So it really brings me also to this, and only are idols universal. Idols are worthless. Idols are worthless. So let me help you illustrate this by telling you the story of Mars Hill. It's really interesting when you get down there. You'll notice in the text where it says that Paul found this altar to the unknown God. That's right there in the text. Let's see it together. Uh, this is verse number 23. For I passed along and uh, there uh, and observed the object of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, uh, this I proclaim to you. So how did this altar get there? What's the story behind that altar? Well, uh, we don't know for sure, but chances are there is a story about this um, plague that hit Athens, this pestilence that was prevalent in the land. And they all worshiped their idols and prayed to their idols, sacrificed to their idols, and the pestilence remained. 
eventually they call for Epimenides. Epimenides was a Cretan poet, so from the Isle of Crete, and uh, well-known. And so they call for Epimenides. And Epimenides comes, and what he does, this is history now, he went to the Areopagus, right where Paul is right now, and he releases these sheep. He releases black sheep and releases white sheep and lets them wander. And whenever they lay down, then he goes and sacrifices at that spot. And what he did is he sacrificed to the God to whom this pestilence pertains. This unknown God who we obviously haven't tapped into yet. This God who is in control of this pestilence. And he offers something to that God. Now Barnes sums it up well when Barnes says this. None of the gods to whom they usually sacrifice could deliver them from the pestilence. They therefore offered worship to some unknown being who had the power to free them from the plague. And then it became very prevalent. These idols to unknown gods were found everywhere in Rome. By the way, uh, Epimenides is a super interesting character. Later on, Paul's going to say, one of your own poets has said in this text he preaches, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably quoting from Epimenides. In fact, later on in Titus, where he says, all Christians are liars. <laughs> he was probably thinking of Epimenides because Epimenides claimed that he wandered into a cave one day and fell asleep and woke up 50 years later. He was like the original Rip Van Winkle. That's what he claimed. So this guy went down in history. But here he is offering this offer because their idols couldn't do it. Idols never work. Idol worship never works. Idols never deliver on their promises. So I want you to take a moment and think about the world around you and think about your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones who are worshiping idols. Now, we said last week, remember, idols are just God replacements. So whenever you go to something because you don't really believe God will do it, then that is idolatry. When you go to something else to be your ultimate satisfaction, your pleasure, your security, whatever, and it's not God, ultimately, that's idolatry. And man, people all around us are worshiping idols, and it doesn't work. How many people in your life are completely satisfied with their life? Chances are not many. Idols are worthless. But then even more important to note is this. Idols are damning. Idols are damning. There's heaven and there's hell. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ and him alone or there is no forgiveness at all. And the real problem with idolatry is it leads people straight to the gates of hell. And so it is not okay, church. It is not okay. And our world needs to know their idols are worthless and damning. True for the world, yes? Would it be okay for a minute if I just transition and talk about us in the room for a second? Because last week we identified that it's not just the world where we see idolatry. We identified last week that idolatry is in our own very homes. Christians who love the Lord still don't believe fully in their hearts that God is enough and we begin to worship other things. And I want to say to you, our idol worship is worthless. 
and we need to repent. All right, so I think it's really important to note this as well. Um, how does Paul share, this is tough, right? To go to a world and say, your religion is wrong. That's not easy to do. And how does Paul do it? Hey, idiots, your religion is wrong. <laughs> not at all. If you look at the text, it is so incredible how intelligent Paul is and how beautifully he weaves these truths in. If you take a look at this, men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way you're religious. And he goes, he actually pulls in elements from right around them, right, that they were familiar with, uses their own culture and their poets later. And he's trying to show them carefully, beautifully, calmly even, you need something else. It's not like, hi, I'm Jamie Hart. Well, I'm Bob. Hey, Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. So, Bob, where do you go to church? I really don't. Well, I need to know that you're probably going to hell and your religion is worthless. Want to grab coffee sometime? Hey, person I graduated high school with so many years ago. <laughs> I almost said the, how many. I'm not going to this morning. Uh, you just, hey, hope, hope you're doing okay. Saw your pictures. You gained a little weight. But anyway, do you know that you're probably going to hell because you're wrong? Paul is very careful, very calculated to how he, how he presents the gospel. In fact, it's all coming from this heart. This is a 1 Corinthians 10 uh, where he's going to later say this, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, here it is, but that of many, read these last words with me, that they may be saved. Our heart, our passion is yes, to share the truth, to share the gospel, to hold nothing back, but to do it in such a way that people will actually believe. Yes, Paul's desire was to be truthful, no question, but also winsome. So what does that look like for us today? I think it looks a whole lot like us inviting people into our homes. I think it looks a whole lot like us just reaching out in love to our neighbors, being very intentional about finding ways to love the people around us. And it's not easy. Can I get a witness? It's so easy to think about every other thing you've got to do and not think about that. And not, in fact, sometimes when I'm driving home, my neighbor's out and I'm like, oh man, I don't want to get caught by him. <laughs> and neighbors, if you listen to this, it's the other one, not you. Uh, it's them. So, But you get the idea, like we've got to be Winsome. You got to love well and and be very careful in doing that. In fact, it, it leads to this. There's a way in which Paul did this. Not only did he share their religion is wrong, very bold to share that. Uh, Paul also shares this. Write this down. There is a big God. There is a big God who doesn't need us. There is a big God uh, who doesn't need us. And why are you saying it that way, Pastor? Well, I'm just trying to be accurate to the text. So I want you to look in verse number 24. We're asking, Paul, what did you share? Well, here's some things that Paul shared. And now look what he does. So again, remember, this is Paul preaching to a people that don't know the God of the Bible. And here's what he says to them, verse number 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, pause there for a second. So here's one truth that God, uh, uh, what Paul shared. He said that our God, God is the sole creator. God is the sole creator. Uh, um, the only one. Now, interesting, because that's not what they believed. 
They believed in a plurality of God. They were polytheists. There were lots of gods. And they all created different parts. In fact, the Epicureans and the Stoics didn't believe there was a creator at all, and they had different reasons. In fact, MacArthur says this, this teaching flatly contradicted both the Epicureans who believed matter was eternal and therefore had no creator, and the Stoics, as was pantheists, believed that God was part of everything and could not have created himself. And then there were the pagans who believed that the false gods were the ones that created. But Paul here says, no, there was one creator, and that one creator was this God. Interesting. Goes on to share this. Verse number, uh, last part of verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Here it is, being Lord of heaven and earth, or ruler of heaven and earth. So this God is ruler of all. How can you believe to be confined to a temple or an idol? Man, he's over all of that. And then this, into verse 25, it says this, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself, since he himself here it is, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God gives everything to everyone that they need. That's how powerful this God is. Man, it's an amazing, amazing thing. By the way, I love reading that because do you know how many people in our world enjoy all the good things that life has to offer even though they're sinners? Sunrises, sunsets, delicious food, family time. Blessings of God who allows all people, but by the way, uh, the verse number 30, times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere. It's coming a day. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul is saying, here's God, here's God, here's God. Why? Because of this. Into verse number 25. As though he needed anything, he doesn't need anything. He's not served by human hands. Here's the whole point. God is so incredible, he doesn't need us. <laughs> and that just, that just really really was very different than what the Athenians believed because they had their little gods and when their gods got dirty, they would clean them off. When their gods fell over, they'd put them back up. (laughs) When their gods broke, they would fix them. Just shows you the foolishness of idolatry. In fact, I want you to see this. Take your Bible, go to Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44. And in Isaiah 44, there is this incredible story of um, what idolatry really is. You ever read something and you're like, yep, that's it. That sums it up well. This is what we're going to read in uh, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44. And we can start down, let's, let's actually do this. Let's go down to verse number 12. Start in verse number 12, Isaiah 44, verse number 12. The iron smith, it's talking about idolatry, by the way. So verse number nine, all who fashion idols are nothing. So get that in mind, that's the context. It's talking about those who fashion idols. Now verse number 12, the iron smith takes the cutting tool and works it over the coals he fashions it with hammers and works it with his, his strong arm. <laughs> he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. 
So the guy making the idol gets hungry and gets faint. Get the idea? Verse number 13. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow, he, he lets it, the guy, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then he, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. So get the picture. He planted it. He watered it. He, you know, made it. He cuts down the same tree and part of it he burns. Part of it he uses for fire. and Part of it becomes his God. Verse number 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats his meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. It's just foolish. Everyone say, how foolish. Say, how foolish. How foolish. This is what idolatry is. At the end of the day, this is what idolatry is. For the world, amen. Your friends and neighbors, this is what they're doing with their idols that they worship. But if I can also look at us for a second and say not just our friends and neighbors, but when we move in our hearts and we worship idols, we're doing the same thing. Now, though, for sure, the futility of idolatry is certainly in mind here. There is more to it. I want you to think about who is saying this. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. Paul. Do you remember what Paul did before he became a missionary? What was his job before he became a missionary? What did he do? He was a, a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And he's one of these guys who said, God, I am so, he probably spoke with a British accent, God, I am so dedicated to you that I give you my life to serve you. He gave his life for that. But now he says in verse 25, let your eyes back in Acts uh, chapter 17 and verse 25. I want you to see this here. Look at this. Nor is he served by human hands. God is not a God to be served by you. Like he needs you. What was the point of all this? Here are the Athenians caring for their idols and, and their idols needed them to care for them. And, and Paul's point is, listen, it's not about us. It's not about us. And I want to say to our world today, listen, it's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about our serving God. The essence of the gospel is he served us by dying on a cross for us. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And when I say the world is so many people around you are trying to earn their way to heaven by serving God with their life. There's really two versions of religion, people. There is the one where we work our way there, and then there's the one where Jesus earned it for us. 
And most people, Islam, Catholicism, you name it, Buddhism, they are trying to earn God's favor. And the point of this is God needs nothing from us. He needs nothing from us. And they need to know it's not about us. And I want to remind evangelical America, it's not about us. Can you say that with me now? It's not about us because so much of our church has become man-centered. A humanistic preacher recently said this, you walk away from God and you walk away from your destiny. Now, okay, all right, hold on. In a real sense, there is a destiny God created us for, right? And that destiny was what? To bring God glory. And do you need God to do that? Yes, so if you walk away from God, you walk away from that. But that's not what is in mind here. Here's what this guy had in mind and what a lot of evangelical, even Christian preaching has become. It's become about you and you being the champion and you being amazing and you being incredible and you having this destiny. You know, we all believe that deep down inside that really it's all about us. If there was a movie to be made, who would be the star of that movie? Not Courtney, it'd be Jamie, right? Not my kids and their story, it'd be how they had an awesome dad who was behind them that made them the success that they are. I'd be the star of that story. Don't we all believe that? And, and this idea here is that, man, you've got this destiny that you can achieve, and God is there to help you achieve your special destiny. But I'm telling you this, it's not about God coming alongside us so we achieve our destiny. No, no, no. It's all about we didn't deserve our God. We didn't deserve his love. And he came to save us. Not to be served, but to serve. He came to die for our sins. And we need him. The other kind of angle I want to take on this is to say to some of us who really lean self-sufficient. Do you know what I'm talking about? We really, at the end of the day, when we're in trouble, look to ourselves to rescue us. And if I'm in, if I'm in deep, I'm, I, I can get my head around this and I can dig my way out. If I just do more, do it better, or do it smarter, or do it harder, and we're really lying on us, I'm telling you, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about God. Now, here's what's awesome. Kinda, let's get that bigger picture again. Paul preaching to people who are idol worshipers. And Paul in his preaching are saying, how do we combat idolatry? What's the method? And question we should be asking ourselves, what is the method of fighting idolatry, both in our world and in our own heart? And so what Paul does here is Paul lays down a lesson in theology proper. He lays down a lesson in the doctrine of God. This is what idolaters need. You need a bigger view of who your God is. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is amazing. He's a mighty God. Because isn't it true at the end of the day, the reason we worship idols is because somewhere we have bought the lie that God isn't enough. Why would we need idols if God is really enough? Why would we need them? We wouldn't. And so if you want to conquer your own idolatry, if you want to fight that battle yourself, what it is is it is coming and acknowledging that to your God and confessing that to your God. 
That's what we all need. Pagans, wandering Christians, those of us who are striving to be biblical, a bigger view of God. Truth is that the world needs desperately. Your religion is wrong. There is a big God who doesn't need us. And then this, number three, write this down. But, but he wants you to seek him so you can find him. <laughs> no, our God doesn't need us, but he wants us. And let me show you in the text. This is awesome. So we're just following along here, taking it apart verse by verse. And so we looked at verse 25. Where should we go next? If you're awake, you're going to realize it's 26. All right, so here's 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Pause for a second. Do you know how tempting it is right now not to launch into a sermon against racism? Racism is stupid. Do you know why it's stupid? Verse 26. And he made from one man. Every nation of mankind to dwell on the earth. And by the way, that one man probably was an American. Can I get a witness? I know, shocker. But that's a sermon for another day. Look at the end of verse 26. This is cool. Having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Okay, so every nation of the world in history has been where they are, when they are by the sovereign plan of God. They are where they are and when they are by the sovereign plan of God. And that means that you and I are where we are, when we are, by the sovereign plan of God. I never thought I'd be in Fort Wayne. Well, God knew you're going to be in Fort Wayne today. And that's, that's hard for some of us because, you know, I, I grew up in Washington State and Washington State has mountains, and I love the mountains. And I was an hour and a half away from the Blue Mountain Range in Washington. So we'd ski there, we would camp there. When we went camping in the mountains, it was like camping in the mountains. You know what I mean? It was rustic and tense and beautiful scenery. And so now, this is why we love Gatlinburg for vacation. I mean, we go back to Gatlinburg, and it's beautiful. The mountain streams, the beautiful vistas. Man, I love the mountains. You know, we'll go through these souvenir shops and they'll say, the mountains are calling. I'm like, yes, they are. <laughs> and I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where the biggest thing, like, closest to a mountain is that really big hill down southwest that you got to, like, you know, that's it. We, we don't got that here. And, 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 and why am I here? Hmm. By God's sovereign plan. If Courtney's being honest with you, she'll say that she would love to live in the little house on the prairie days. You know what I mean? And what she really means is she wants to be in that TV series. <laughs> she wants Pa to be her Pa, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but anyway, like, look, we, we have that. Like, I've often said, man, I'd love to live back in the Victorian English days, you know, and... And um, I was describing this as Lauren Nichols. I was describing to somebody like I want to. I envision myself as a guy who wears suits, who has a beard, who smokes a pipe. And he said, "Yeah, Dennis Nichols." I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's right. That is Dennis. He's the guy I want to be." All right. So, anyway, the uh, that's like you know. But but I'm, I'm here. I'm here now. I'm here now. Why? 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 Let your eyes see it. It's actually in the text. Check this out in verse number twenty-seven. Check this out. 
having determined there are a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, here it is, that they should seek God. Why am I here now? Why am I in Fort Wayne? So you would seek God. Why wasn't I born at a different time? So you would seek God. I don't know, maybe living in the mountains would satisfy my soul enough that I wouldn't think I needed God. I don't know. God knows. God knows just what Jamie needs, and he's put me just where I need because here it is. God wants us to seek him. It is no accident your neighbors are your neighbors. It is no accident your coworkers are your coworkers. But I hate my job. I know, I get it. I mean, I don't get it because I love my job. <laughs> I love my job. But I hear it all the time. Guys will tell me that, like, all the time. I hate my job. I know. And mostly they mean, I thought I'd be like an NBA star or a. Uh, massively popular author or a movie star, whatever they dream to be, and I'm not that. Instead, I'm a tire salesman or an insurance salesman. I get it. But God wants you, wants you, us, the world, to seek him. In fact, this is from John uh, 4, 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Here it is. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Yes, he's a God who is exclusive. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to seek him. Isn't what we have always wanted was to be wanted? Isn't that true? From the time we were a baby and mama's holding us and we felt loved and wanted to being in the playground and hoping that somebody wants us to be on their team and never did happen. I was always last. It's maybe even this week being in the office and someone wanting you for their project. I don't know. We all just long to be wanted. We want to be wanted. And I can say to you, God wants you. And he wants us to find him. And the text says, he's not far. truth the world needs to hear your religion is wrong there is a big god who doesn't need us but he wants you to seek him and find you so you can find him and then lastly this so we need to repent because jesus will judge the earth we need to repent because jesus will judge the earth and i think this is really clear in verse number 29 so we're just following along in the text now verse number 29 being then god's offspring by the way, he quotes here, uh, verse 28 is a quote from Scripture. In him we have life and, and moving and being. That's, that's from Scripture. And then you have this, uh, and as even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Probably a quote from uh, Epimenides, the guy who kind of got this whole unknown God thing started. Don't know for sure, because most of his, or I think all of his writings are gone, but chances are this is, this is Epimenides. Uh, probably ESV people have a footnote that says as much. But anyway, uh, verse number 29, but then being his offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being gold, like a gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So here it is, why? Here's why it's so important, verse number 30. The times of ignorance... God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere, all people everywhere to, what's the word, church? Okay, not a 
popular word today, but very popular in the uh, book of Acts, used frequently in this book. In fact, in the first sermons, the first few sermons in the book, it is like the conclusion to every sermon. So therefore, you need to repent. What you got to do is repent. And so there's this call to repent. And what I want you to see is this, here's the meaning behind that Greek word. Here's a Greek lexicon, the launida. And the launida defines that Greek word this way. It's really intriguing. To change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To repent, to change one's way. It's a big, big deal. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Uh, Ethan, come up here, if you would, please. And this is the last time you'll pick on me in front of the world. No, just come on up here. And what I want you to do, Ethan, is I want you to walk toward me. So this is us walking along, and all of a sudden we get hit with truth. And that truth then, what it does is it wakes us up. <laughs> in turn. Uh, and, and you see the truth, and we turn from our sin Man, I'm a sinner, I'm wretch. And we begin to walk a different way. That's repentance. It's a 180 turn. You track with me on this? Okay, stay there for just a second. Now, the world needs to see this. They need to see their religious ways, their ways of living, the ways they are thinking are wrong and will lead them to hell. And Jesus died for them So they have to turn from their pursuit of whatever that religion is giving them and turn to Jesus for salvation. You with me on this? That's what your friends need, your neighbors need. They all need to repent. Well, just sit down for a second. I'm going to bring it here again a second. Okay, why is that? Why is repentance needed? Well, take a look at verse number 31. Check this out now. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Uh-oh, now it's serious. In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is Jesus. And what he is saying is there's coming a day when Jesus will judge the world. Man, that's important. That's serious. That's huge. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, so it's easy for us to say, okay, is there really a day? <laughs> is that really true? No, it's true. It's coming. And every person you see tomorrow will stand before Jesus to judge one day. Every coworker every family member, every neighbor will stand before Jesus Christ one day. And he'll be the judge. And the only question is, did you believe that I died for your sin and rose again? And if the answer is no, the judgment is hell. because of our sin. And all are guilty, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus wasn't okay with the world being condemned to sin. He came and he lived a perfect life 
and he died a sinner's death. And according to this text, he rose again to give assurance. Death could not keep him. He is God. He is the Messiah, and he rose to prove it. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And for all who have faith in him, man, isn't there another level of assurance that we have that Jesus died for our sin and rose again and we have assurance of life with him? That's what the world needs. And that's why we gotta spread this. That's why we gotta preach this. That's why we gotta be about this. This is the truth they need to hear. And it's a truth that we need to hear. Can I get a witness? Because we need to repent. And repentance is this. You think I'm up here. It is you're going along in life. You are hit with truth. I'll be gentle this time. You are hit with truth. And you are broken about that truth. I'm sinning. This is sin. I can't do this anymore. I've got to turn from that sin and walk a new way. And what I have found in my counseling and in my ministry often our people get to this point and they see the sin is wrong they're sad about being wrong but are we broken about it this will kill discipleship this will kill your growth i i had to face this i was struggling with this significance battle that I fight all the time. And my counselor asked me, hey, I see you acknowledge it's wrong, but are you broken about it? And that broke me. <laughs> and if you're going along and you're, know you have these idols you're going to, you know you have these sins that are your pet sins, and you acknowledge that they're wrong, but are you broken about it? Enough to say, God, I can't be this way anymore. I need Jesus to help me turn and to walk another way. And you can just walk on right back to your seat. All right. Because the answer for the world church is the answer for us, and it is Jesus. And I want to turn from my sin because he loves me. And according to the Bible, I can walk in newness of life because he rose again. I, sin has no power over me. It has been rendered inoperative and counted powerless. And just as we are a part of his death, we're also a part of his resurrection and we have a new life and you can live differently. And I wanna encourage you to do that. All right, church, there are truths the world needs to hear and Honestly, it's the gospel, so we need to hear them again, and here's the response. We need Jesus, and maybe right now in your life, you know you need Jesus on a deeper level. You know there are areas to turn from. There's repentance needed, and you need Jesus Christ to speak into those things. Here's what I want you to do. Take a moment right now, bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's offer up a prayer to our God, and I want you to pray, and I want you to say, God, I... I need more Jesus. I need to repent of my apathy to the world around me. I need to repent of my fear for not sharing the gospel more and sharing the truths I know they need to hear. I gotta repent of my own heart idols that are weighing me down. 
and I need Jesus. You take a moment and you pray that to him. Father God, I don't know the hearts of everyone in here, but I know human hearts, and I know my own heart, and I know my propensity for idolatry. Father, as I have lived, you have been so good. The longer I have lived, to show me how deep my idols go and how many idols there are, and you're so long-suffering and gracious toward me. But Father, of those idols, I need repentance. And Father, maybe the prayer some people need to pray in this room today is, I'm not broken, but I want to be broken. Father, break me of my sin. And Father, would you do that? And then, Lord, with a heart filled up with your grace, send us out to a world that needs these truths. And let us be zealous and passionate and bold to share them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You are loved, Redemption, with a minute to spare. Man, a minute early, you are welcome. I won't tell you that it was more like five or ten minutes in the first service. So, you are loved. Happy uh, Fourth of July.